Welcome to the Utah Episcopalians. Now, this is a podcast about our unusual church in our unusual land, the Diocese of Utah, and the area that pretty much encompasses the state of Utah. Now, today, we have something really, I think, um, when we talk about the unique church, that truly separates us, and that is every three years, the church meets to discuss not only budget and administrative affairs, but gets into theology, gets into the types of rituals that uh, protect and uh, define the Episcopal Church. And it's done with the bishops of the church. It's done with the clergy of the church and the laity of the church. Now, when I say every three years, this time it went four years because of the pandemic. And normally it lasts about 10 days and this one lasted five days because of the pandemic. Now to talk about that, we have one of the elected representatives, we call them deputies, to general convention, the Reverend Kurt Wiesner of the great St. Paul's Church here in Salt Lake City, one of the really, really beautiful churches. So if you haven't been there, you gotta go to that one. It's just one of the truly um, magnificent Episcopal churches in our diocese. We have 22 congregations, but this is one it's a must-see uh, in Salt Lake City. So welcome, sir, and we appreciate you coming here because you were there. You were in Baltimore uh, earlier this month when we talked about some of these great discussions, and some of them are really church changing, aren't they? Such as let's talk about the Book of Common Prayer, which has been like for like 400 years or something in the Anglican church. And to this year, there was kind of a change. There was a different evolution of that that handles many of the contemporary issues that we're facing today. Let's start there and then we're gonna move into some other topics. First of all, welcome, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Craig. Um... Yeah, this convention was shaped by COVID. And I think that really, yeah, everything that happened there was in uh, that framework. And so the reality is, is that of course we, uh, it took four years for us to gather together. Um, it was postponed for an entire year and uh, we were hoping that would be enough. And it wasn't because the reality of COVID made outbreaks likely. So, um, and just executive council, which is the body that meets in between general conventions, um, appointed a public health uh, official to advise the creation and modification of this general convention. And the decision was made to shorten it from eight days of legislative work to four, uh, which was a huge thing. And 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 more and just as important is who was going to attend. Uh, they were expecting about ten thousand people at the general convention, and um, we had to make it so that um, only uh, bishops, deputies, essential presenters, staff, and event support would be there. So that meant twelve hundred people ended up attending. But that meant there was no exhibit hall, which shows the breadth and body of the church. That, that wasn't there. There was no Episcopal youth presence. There were no visitors. I mean, I, I was part of the, the joy and the amazement is simply attending as a visitor 
and seeing how much there is to the church. And none of that was there. And that was a huge, huge loss. But it kept us as safe as it possibly could. All the deputies and the bishops tested for COVID-19 every morning. We wore masks the entire time. Uh, we, and, and COVID still spread. I mean, we, we, every day, the numbers went up. Now, thankfully, they were much lower than projected, certainly over an eight-day conference, or if there had been 10,000 people instead of 1,200. But it dramatically altered this convention. So, so much of the work ahead of time was done um, in uh, legislative work of committees that happened over Zoom. And we, we made an amazing discovery, and that actually gave it more access rather than less. So, so much of what was discussed at the, on the legislative floor was discussed ahead of time. And so um, that made the work that was accomplished possible. You know, you're talking about all these wonderful things that go on at General Convention when it isn't four days long. Um, worship, um, people getting together, even walking on on the streets outside of the convention centers. I know I've been fortunate to be five conventions and some of the great conversations that you have and just um, walking back and forth from meetings and that was lost. Was there something lost that you saw? You've, you've been, of course, uh, at various conventions. And I think about the one in Salt Lake City in 2015 when the Salt Palace was full of people. You talk about 10,000, the, the exhibit hall, people walking across West Temple, down South Temple, up and down the streets to the hotels and the lobbies. Was that lost? Absolutely. I mean, there, there was the, um, the, the breadth of the church that is on display at General Convention uh, was not seen. And, and that was a real loss. I mean, part of, of convention is that while the House of Bishops meets separately from the House of Deputies, equal clergy and lay. Um, we always come together for worship, along with all our visitors and all the presenters into this huge space where we always worship together, because that common worship is so critical to who we are as Episcopalians. But that wasn't safe. And so we had our worship within the house. The uh, sermons were pre-recorded. Uh, done expertly well, mind you. Uh, the, the four uh, reflectors did an amazing job with that format, but it was still different. It was still a different experience. And, um, and, and that's loss. There's no two ways about it. That was loss. It, you know, the city is on display and Baltimore had been so patient to uh, wait a year for us because, because it had to be uh, delayed and it was a much smaller event. And um, while we learn uh, that we can accomplish a lot over a short period of time and that we can do a lot of work in advance through the technology of Zoom, uh, it was different. And it was different in a way that had real tangible loss. So we see that the church is more than administration and even resolutions, I, and we're going to get into some of those uh, here, but that you see the church as the personal connection, I guess, uh, 
that that was lost. That's an interesting point because there are those that came back and they said, look, we could do this in four days from now on. This could be our new uh, model. I gather you're not uh, endorsing that model. I think there's a hybrid to, to, to go on. I, I think that having things online and a lot of the work done ahead of time is a good thing. I think that we can shorten the overall time working on legislation. But um, I do think that uh, there are uh, the need to have, to fully gather as the church. And, mm -hmm. and we need that opportunity because for so many people, this is the entry point into, wow, this is the church and not just our uh, home congregation, which we see a relatively limited view, or even our diocese, which is great and gives us a bigger view of the church, but it's still limited. So I, I do think that um, we can make some intentional changes, but I don't think that we want to completely go away from everything we've done in the past. I think it's a, it's a hybrid of things. I see. Now let's talk about some of these things that were done thousands of miles away and how they affect your congregation uh, and all the other congregations in our diocese, as well as every place else. One is, as we talked at the top of the program here, the Book of Common Prayer for somebody like me, who this is my 70th year as a Episcopalian, the Book of Common Prayer there was the Bible, there was the Book of Common Prayer, yeah. and nothing else. You know, I mean, sure, there's there's trials or, uh, here and there and some uh, modification. The Book of Common Prayer has only been modified in, in recent times, in the 20s, and then in the late 70s. And here we are talking about an entirely different approach. Uh, boy, do you want to explain that? That seems... Like, like almost earth shattering, isn't it? Sure, sure. Well, earth shattering is a good way to explain the way Episcopalians approach a new book of common prayer. Yeah. Um, until 1928, it was always assumed that the prayer book that was put forth was going to be the prayer book for all time. But, you know, this is it. We got it right this time. And it was, <laughs> only, it, it was only in 1928 where we made the uh, the statement that the prayer book for today is the prayer book of tomorrow. And so revision started on day one from the 1928 prayer book being ratified. And the work began on supplemental texts and to, again, help to transition into the inevitable change that was going to happen. Now, that did not make the 1979 prayer book any easier for those who felt uh, devoted and, and that the 28th book was perfect. But um, I, I do think it laid out a process for transformation and change that is always going to be necessary in the Episcopal Church. But now we find ourselves at a different place. We have the entire Book of Common Prayer and all of the supplemental texts that we use in our church already available online. They're downloadable in a moment. And so we already have a church that is using a lot of different liturgical material um, to express the breadth of the church. And the question that has, we're wrestling with is, do we make 
every Episcopal church in the world throw out essentially the 1979 prayer book and accept and only accept whatever next book we publish and require everybody to buy it, considerable expense, <laughs> and also understand that it becomes obsolete the moment it's printed, because remember, it comes out and then it has a trial use for three years. So they'll approve it after three years, but it's already three years out of date. So how do we manage this? What's the best use of resources, but also uh, to acknowledge uh, the breadth of who we are? Um, so what was done at General Convention um, is we've understood that the prayer book is that breath, that time-tested breath of materials that has a process to be um, made official, and that's over considerable time and approval by the General Convention. But rather than said, we have to print a new book every time we want to change the Book of Common Prayer, we will use the technology that we have to, to address this. So what, I've got the resolution in front of me. I'm going to read this first section because this is so critical. The Book of Common Prayer is understood to be those liturgical forms and other texts authorized by the General Convention. So let's take something that was approved back at our 2015 General Convention in Salt Lake City, marriage equality. Absolutely, yeah. And we created rights for same-sex marriage. That is not in the Book of Common Prayer because the past says the only way it can be in the Book of Common Prayer is if we print and ratify a new book and then require everyone to get it. So these marriage rights that have been approved by the church over the same process that trial use and then ratification for full use would then be considered an equal standing part of the Book of Common Prayer. All of the, the uh, Eucharistic prayers that are in Enriching Our Worship One, which in many cases is the primary Eucharistic prayer that's used in many Episcopal churches, rather than require it to be printed in a single book of common prayer, would now be on equal status as part of the book of common prayer. Yeah. We have the same restrictions on they have to be approved first for trial use over a three-year period, and then potentially ratified to be part of the Book of Common Prayer or continued use as a supplemental book. But it doesn't tie our hands to the printing of a singular book. And I, I think that this is going to be really helpful for the church because there are some people where the 1979 prayer book is what uh, takes their breath away. It's what says, this is Episcopal liturgy. And we don't need to replace that. But we do need to add things to it, especially in terms of inclusive language and also uh, experiences in racial equity. And all of this 
um, needs to have equal weight. And unfortunately, too often, some people say, well, that's not in the Book of Common Prayer. It doesn't really count. It's less than. And when you tell people that their wedding ceremony is less than because it's not in the official 1979 Book of Common Prayer, you have separate but equal. And it's not really equal. Right. So I think this gets to the heart of expansive liturgy that still is approved official by our body. And that's a good, good thing. So I, I'm very hopeful that um, uh, this is a constitutional change. So what we did here in Baltimore has to, again, be addressed in Louisville at the 81st General Convention. And it has to be pretty much the exact same language. Absolutely. But, uh, and I'm sure there will be some debate, but uh, as, again, an observer and a practicing Episcopalian, that did seem to me to be very important, and particularly um, as the church did wrestle, and in some cases it did wrestle with the idea of same-sex marriage, and it was a lot uh, even people saying, well, this is not possible because it isn't in the BCP. Yeah. And so it, it would be uh, an, almost a, a, an offense to do that. So I think um, it certainly has, and you've expressed that pretty eloquently. And I, I want to just, just add that all of our approved authorized texts in another resolution can now be found at uh, a official liturgical website of the Episcopal Church, which is Episcopal Common Prayer, all one word, dot org. And this was created by the Task Force on Liturgical and Prayer Book Revision. So you can see the breadth of what is already happening in the Episcopal Church by going to a single website, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. That oh, access is part of what we value as Episcopalians. It's not just the bishops who have it, it's not just the clergy who have it, it's available to the entire church. This, this appears to be a really, not just inclusive resolution, but it's a statement of who we are in many ways, isn't it? That it, it shows that we, we can evolve, we can change. We do it with a great deal of thought, a great deal of prayer and to the general conventions to pass it, but we can move. Um, and we would talk about the hymnal, but that's a whole other subject, isn't it? So thank goodness it's another subject that wasn't on our agenda. Yeah, that would take a seven-day session right there. All right. I want to move on. And and that is another thing that I think is really appropriate to uh, Utah and particularly the work of um, uh, the Reverend Michael Carney uh, at uh, in White Rocks at our St. Elizabeth's Church. And certainly um, uh, the great work of uh, Forrest Kutch, who is one of the parishioners at that church. And that is a recognition and a um, long overdue recognition um, of some of the uh, situations that I'm sure we've seen in the news about what we call the Indian schools and about indigenous people in general. and a lot of the rights. And again, we just had another Supreme Court decision that perhaps causes some um, discomfort among some of our uh, friends, brothers, relatives um, in the uh, reservations. 
and I know the indigenous um, resolutions and others that we've talked to have described it as one of the most amazing moments that they felt on the floor of the House of Deputies when these discussions came up and one of the uh, deputies, uh, Rhonda Uber of our diocese who was there described it um, similar to when the right of the wrong of um, Cuba in the last, the last uh, general convention came forward that this had that same cheerful, but yet of course it's recognition of some horrible things that have gone on. Well, with all that long introduction, I'm gonna ask you now to pick up that story and to explain what happened, how you felt as a priest in this diocese where you've been aware of the good work uh, on uh, several of our churches and you've been aware of the issues and just sort of your impressions and what it means for us in Utah particularly. Sure, sure. So yeah, I think I want to begin with this, the reality that the Episcopal Church is committed to reckoning with the history of racism. And the way you do that is study and share history, history that's known and history that needs to be uncovered, to have truth telling about it, a commitment to transform shared leadership because it's not just making statements, it's about transforming your leadership and to making change. So the particular resolution that Rhonda was referring to was A-127, and it was a promise to confront the Episcopal Church's historical ties to the federal system of indigenous boarding schools. And, and I wanna read this section because it's really worth hearing. The 80th General Convention appropriated $2.5 million over the next two years, or some other degree of funding commemorate with the Episcopal Church's commitment to the work of truth-telling and reconciliation around its role in indigenous residential boarding schools to adequately fund the provisions of the resolution specifically, one, to fund the creation support of a fact-finding commission, two, to fund the work of the Office of Indigenous Ministries to create education resource regarding the church's role in indigenous residential boarding schools, and three, to fund a grant program to support the work of the diocese of the Episcopal Church in both conducting their own resource into the diocesan role in indigenous residential boarding schools. Uh, that's critical for us here in Utah. Uh, and preserving their stories of boarding school survivors and their families. And four, to support the establishment of community-based spiritual healing centers in indigenous communities across the Episcopal Church to address the intergenerational trauma rooted in the church's role in indigenous residential boarding schools. So that is the requirements that are there. Mm -hmm. Now, you might not be surprised that no one um, rose to speak against this resolution. So what usually happens is that if that's the case, that everyone is for something, then you limit the number of people who speak so that we can get onto the vote because we have a lot of business. But that's not what President Jennings did because we continued the process of telling these stories by giving the time for people to share the stories of their parents and in some cases their children and with 
loved ones and the experience of the pain and suffering that has uh, been done in the name of the church and the country. And so this time was spent because it was necessary to tell these stories in the midst of our general convention body. And so it was incredibly moving uh, to, to hear um, these individual moments of uncovering the truth. And, and um, this is the beginning of the process, but doing it in such a public setting, hopefully will um, show a commitment to doing this throughout the Episcopal Church. So here in Utah, it can be seen as a model for setting up uh, the ability to tell the stories, to change the leadership, and to see where do we go from here. And, and I think that the resolution spoke to all three of these and put an incredible financial commitment to the process. It's, it's a very difficult subject to talk about. And, and I do recommend, by, by the way, uh, if anyone has the opportunity to go to Phoenix, there's a, a, a very moving museum of um, the indigenous uh, schools. And, and to go there, it changes your, it's a life-changing experience to go to. Let me ask you, your rector of a congregation in Salt Lake City, you are not one that's right next to a reservation. We're of a church that did not operate a uh, school, an Indian school, although I guess we, we certainly can say we were complacent at that time. Mm -hmm. There was a school operated um, in White Rocks uh, which was not done by our particular faith tradition, but those that went to that school were required to go to the Episcopal Church because it was the closest church um, to that school in, in an effort to try to change, um, and change is the right word, uh, a group and a culture. Now, let me go back here, your rector. What do you think you can do, and that's advice to other um, priests in charge in our diocese in places where it wasn't right in our neighborhood. Um, the closest Indian school would have been Brigham City to us. What can you do in your church that goes along with this resolutions concepts? What do you plan to do? And I know you've been very, very uh, supportive of this type of a, of a resolution and have been a leader and a, a um, very good um, friend and pastoral friend of the uh, efforts in, in Utah. What do you plan to do and what can we do as Episcopalians uh, to do something? I mean, I feel almost at a loss. What can I do with 150 years experience or, or something to do? Yeah, well, the first thing uh, to do um, has already been done, and that was Forrest Kutch and um, Michael Carney uh, asked people to consider and recognize um, the original owners of the land that we operate on. So um, if you ever get an email from me, 
you'll see you know the Reverend Kurt Wiesner, Rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Salt Lake City, and then you'll see St. Paul's Episcopal Church occupies and operates upon the ancestral and traditional lands of the Northwestern Shoshone, Gusyut, and Ute tribes. And 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 if I made a mispronunciation, that's that I, I apologize for that. I'm I'm always challenged in that area. But this is a small acknowledgement that can grow into something more. And I think that we need to trust our siblings who are indigenous persons to, um, again, uh, push us to the growing edge as to what else we can do. I don't have those answers, um, other than the fact that, that I know that there are uh, people in the church who have those stories that need to be told. So whether it's creating the forums for them to be told, or to intentionally doing it as a diocese, uh, as the the uh, to be part of of these conversations beyond uh, the state of Utah, all of those are necessary in our going forward. Um, I. Um, I'm going to keep a close eye on the task force that's put together and to see what they suggest because they're the experts in in our in in some ways that we can uh, respond appropriately. So rather than assume that I have the answer to that as a white man, yeah. uh, I, I, I want to um, uh, give voice to those who um, have the experience and also said, this is what we need to do. And if I can be part of those conversations, and, and great, but, but, but I'm not going to steer that ship because I shouldn't. It's not for me to steer, but it is uh, critical for me and for others already in the place of leadership to raise up new leaders and empower their voices to be heard. And I think you can see some of that uh, in the Episcopal Church as a whole, with um, our uh, elections to uh, to our uh, to our leaders, which we can get into in a little bit. Sure. And you've been um, uh, uniquely uh, placed as an observer of this process because of your work that you've done with the Executive Council as a, as a chaplain and. Um, observing, and I know there has been a lot of effort in the in the executive uh, council too, to try to do this. But it it you you hit it on the head with that so many of this of people of this church uh, are not um, uh, personally have been affected as white people as we're predominantly in that um, category. And it is a responsibility we must do, and you, you, you've placed it that we, this is important. This is- We're paralyzed by guilt a lot of the time, but that paralyzation also keeps us from going forward. Or we shrug our hands up and say, well, there's nothing really to do. Or even um, the other response, which I hear sometimes is, well, I didn't do this. And, and now we're um, deflecting any responsibility in the learning of history, the truth telling, the change in leadership, and then where do we go from here? Do you think just as also a, a um, 
interesting personal experience would be to invite your congregation and all Episcopalians, which of course the word invitation is always out to our churches, but to go attend a church in in White Rocks or in Randlett are, are two of our places that just the sheer going to those communities and attending worship at one of those churches would be helpful for somebody like me who is isolated from um, much of that experience. Well, I, I begin with saying that it every time you uh, leave your home neighborhood and go out in the world, that um, spending a little bit of time in your local Episcopal church or in learning the history of the place that you're visiting is a way to um, advance your, uh, your understanding of, of, of truth and what's going on and the breadth of who we are. So, um, you know, going to White Rocks, I would probably talk with the congregation there first as saying, hey, I, you know, what, what would be helpful? Or, you know, if, if, it's, if, I, if um, th that sort of, of or, or where does this forum happen? Where, where is, where should this take place? Certainly, uh, I think it's a good idea always to, to, to find out, uh, again, that history of the place. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say it's less effective than to say, hey, we're going to, uh, we, we want one person to come to our space and do a program for us. I don't think that's quite as effective. Um, but I would also say that, that um, you know, when it, you mentioned executive council and executive council intentionally at every meeting heard from a, a group of people who have been marginalized by the Episcopal Church as a whole. We heard our, uh, our trans siblings. Uh, we've heard uh, from the, quote, Asian American experience, which is so vast and that's such a, uh, um, that doesn't even begin to encompass this huge breadth of many different cultures that's involved in that statement. Um, and then when we were here in Utah from uh, Forrest and Michael uh, telling about some of the history of indigenous persons here in Utah and in the surrounding region and, and what they experienced sometimes directly from the Episcopal Church. So all of this is part of the solution. It's not simply a doing one thing and being done. Well, it's been fascinating. And regretfully, we're kind of out of time and we got so much more to cover. We're going to have to do this again, aren't we? And um, it's been so, uh, I, I think, enlightening to hear your experiences we talk about first-person stories in all of these uh, that to, to hear it and to hear it from somebody there always before we uh, we leave here uh, Brianna's been recording this all and uh, listening to us and I want to give her a chance to just ask if she has any observations or questions and then we're going to let you go but uh, I have deeply appreciated your time here it's it's I think a lot of soul searching, a lot of reflection, and um, 
a, a lot of information that shows just how deep this is. And in a half hour, we can only scratch the surface. Just look what we got to do over the next years of, and the next time period. But Brianna, um, do you have any observations, questions? Yeah, I want to say thank you too. This really has been great, um, especially as someone that got to observe General Convention remotely. Uh, it's good to get a personal story of someone that attended. For some of our listeners, because there was a four-year gap, this might be their first experience with General Convention, um, even if they didn't go, just hearing about it, you know, on their own. So I, I want to ask, just to personalize it even a little bit more, what was your favorite moment from General Convention this year? I know it was different and hopefully the next one will have a little bit more of that socialization and connection. But for this year, what was a moment that really stood out for you? So I, I think watching the final um, presiding of the Reverend Gay Jennings, president of the House of Deputies and seeing um, the 11 years she spent as the president of the House of Deputies, and 20 years before that, uh, deeply involved in the working of the House of Deputies. And the way she functions is that, that um, sometimes she is teaching and educating as how the House of Deputies works, because some people are there for the first time ever, and it can be incredibly overwhelming. And there's sometimes, you know, this sort of gentle teaching moment that's there. Other times there is a let's move us along or let's let's make this change so that we can um, allow the voices that need to be heard. But something that uh, Gay has been doing for the past 11 years is raising up new leadership and leadership of the next generation and also leadership that moves beyond our um, dominant white male history. And so perhaps nothing is more obvious of this conclusion than the election of Julia Oyla Harris as the new president of the House of Deputies. She's the youngest person ever elected to lead the House. She is the first Latina ever to be the president of the House of Deputies. And it all started for her with a phone call from Gay Jennings and saying that, and, and, and Julia mentioned how shocked she was to see Gay Jennings' name pop up on her cell phone. She had no idea that Gay Jennings even knew who she was. And Gay was there to saying, I need you to be part of this next stage of work. And this is 11 years ago, um, because I know you're interested in it, you're a part of this, and we need your voice. And uh, that intentionality of leadership transformation is by far the most important aspect of our general convention. Because if your leaders don't change, it's really hard for the rest of the church to change. Now, we're not done simply because we've elected this awesome young Latina woman to lead our church. But it's a step in the right direction. And if you go and listen to Julia's uh, uh, video address, on that fourth day of convention, you're going to get blown away. You're yeah, get blown away by that transformation. Yes, I certainly was. So we will link that as well because it was a fantastic moment to bear witness to. Yeah. yeah. And I, 
And I also want to say that the those who went to general convention as deputies, along with our bishop-elect Phyllis, is are going to uh, gather together to reflect and consider how we as the Diocese of Utah uh, need to engage the work from the 80th General Convention. So all of this is at the very beginning. So as much as I've done reflecting here today, it's only one person's uh, a view and start of what needs to be happen over the next two years before we gather again in Louisville for the 81st General Convention. And even then, it's going to be amazing because at that point, we elect a new presiding bishop after having um, the, it's hard to believe all those years have passed, but we've had, and, and, and certainly just as uh, the Reverend Gay Jennings uh, served and we move on, we keep evolving, but a lot to be done over these next couple of years. So we're going to have to let you get to work because you've got a lot to do over the two years, but we're going to check back with you because I think uh, general convention, we often think of as it's over now, and now we don't have to do anything for three more years, in this case, two more years, but um, that's not true. We're just beginning. So we're going to check back with you. And I gave sure. myself a few days to allow yeah. myself just to go that then pay attention to my yeah. seven-year-old. So, uh, but, but now it's already, it's time to get back into this. It's time to, you know, we can't lose the breath of what happened in Baltimore. Well, with all that, we say thank you very much to the Reverend Kurt Wiesner of uh, St. Paul's here in Salt Lake City. And do take a trip over on to Ninth East and take a look at this. This is really a beautiful church. And, and I think a, a place of worship, as we say, is the basis of our church. And we thank you for listening to the Utah Octopalians. This is a podcast from the Diocese of Utah, where we look at our unusual church in our unusual state and diocese. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll have another subject coming up.